Welcome to Movement Scenes and Genres, or as I keep banging on about it, calling it uh, MSG10, where we invite a guest on to talk us through literally either a movement, a scene, or a genre uh, in 10 songs. If you're listening on our website, infrequency.co.uk, or our Mixcloud, uh, links are on our website. It's just easier to go there. Um, you'll hear all the music as we're talking about it. If you're listening on, I don't know, Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you'll hear some little things that go bloop, bloop, bloop for about five seconds. And there'll be a link to a Spotify playlist if you want to sort of do it that way. But really, just come over to Infrequency. It's the best way to find everything. Um, previous shows in the series have included um, the Hoboken Sound, um, bands in uh, bands seen by Paul Hanley of The Fall in 1979 in his local music venue. Um, Sharia Moore took us through New York No Waves. Zoe Von Hess took us through a sort of acid jazz, soul funk revival as she experienced it in Hong Kong in the 90s. Um, we've also had uh, Sarah Marcus come on and talk us through Riot Girl and also, Chris Thorpe Tracy talking us through the history of protest music in the 20th century, which was a very big uh, but very fascinating conversation. Um, today, I am joined by, and I'm literally cribbing from his his, his website, um, author, critic, com- uh, author, critic, uh, comic musician, um, writer of a book about, well, books about uh, Manic Street Preachers and Terry Pratchett, though not the same um also the third person that we've had on this who has written for the quietus um because i forgot to mention we also did noise rock as well um we've got mark burrows hey mark how are you hi uh, i misread the invitation and thought we were going to madison square gardens but it turns out i'm just sat at home <laughs> i was excited for a little <laughs> <Yeah>. while <laughs> No, sadly, 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 it's it's just it's just two people staring into a camera with a microphone. Um, so, thank you for joining us. And what movement or scene or genre are we getting tucked into today? We are going to talk about one of my pet subjects, the thing I could probably do on Mastermind, and uh, a formative part, I think, of British, um, certainly white British indie music. We are going to talk about the rise, uh, the fall, and the, not the literal fall, they weren't involved, uh, the rise and the fall of Britpop. I'm really glad the fall weren't involved because we, on our sister podcast, Temporary Fandoms, which I'm going to get to in a very brief second, we did uh, six episodes on the fall. And this is also kind of some weird origin story because this podcast came out of Temporary Fandoms, which is our other podcast, and Temporary Fandoms came out of a Facebook group, which started when all the members decided to listen to all the Fall albums, one per day. And they did that. Why did they do that, Mark? What Do you, do you have any idea what their inspiration was? Well, I'm told, and so... Uh, and. 
first I should probably say I'm sorry, but uh, back in 2014, I think <laughs> I it was listened 20- to 20. I, I did the 27 albums in three weeks. It, it almost broke me. Uh, back in 2014, <laughs> I decided to, I, I decided I didn't know enough about the Fall, and I and I pitched a piece to the Guardian where I'd listened to only the Fall for a month and listened to all of their albums one a day, and then kind of r- track the progress of that, expecting it to send me insane and to like like come out of it sick to death of the fall and it actually turned me into a fall obsessive which um i was either gonna go one or two ways so yeah that i believe and i unbeknownst to me like um this kind of cult-like entity spread out from that from that <laughs> one article so uh i mean i don't i don't take any credit for the actual content form or entertainment value or harm done by the podcast or the facebook group <laughs> but uh, apparently it did come from a piece I wrote for the Guardian. And if I, that's all I'm going to impact on the world for the rest of my life, I'll take it. There we go. Thank you very much for being part of our origin story um, and for being the reason I had to listen to all of the fall in a month. Um, but that's why we're here now. And Anyway, we're, we're into Britpop. Britpop, which is the most 90s of 90s thing, apart from maybe the Spice Girls. Um, and also, I'm going to start with a very simple question. Did Britpop exist? Oh, that is such a good question. (laughs) I mean, did it? I mean, was it one of those things like... Every genre is made up, and often by music journalists. Um, I was a Grebo kid when I was younger, and I will tell you that Grebo didn't really exist, but I can tell you also when Grebo ended which was when the Wonder Stuff appeared on Top of the Pops doing Size of a Cow. Um, but <laughs> was Grebo, sorry, Grebo, was Britpop actually a thing, Mark? I mean, the question you're really asking there is, what is Britpop, essentially? And I would argue that actually Britpop is a, was a thing. It did exist. Uh, because it wasn't so much a genre, although it was a music genre. It was, you know, um, British indie bands, between essentially 1993 and 1998, basically. Although it ebbs and flows and changes over that time. And you could say there's a core of it, 94, 95, which is what you'd call prime sort of Britpop. Like, was it a music genre? Mm, I mean, it's just a bunch of indie bands. You know, some of them are more rock, some of them are more post-punk, some of them are are more kind of jangly. Essentially, it's just indie. It's just, Britpop was just indie. That's all all it really is. Um, But it did exist as a cultural moment. Like, if you you look at that period, if you look at the influence of those bands, if you look at the, you know, the mass hysteria that came around, like these touch touch points, like um, the Blur Oasis chart battle, Oasis at Nebworth, um, it like... Yeah, you know, the Britpop Now TV show and B- that the Damon Alburn presented on BBC Two. If you look at the impact on the way Top of the Pops was, um, if you look at the kind of bands that labels were were um, signing, like you leg- legitimately, Britpop was a moment. It was a th- it w- it was a tangible era. So I'd say it's more of an era than a genre, but it did exist as a, a way of defining that period. If you're looking at it through music and through sort of British, British popular culture. No, that makes total sense. And, and it's, it's reflected when you go back into other things, like the Mad, the Manchester scene, for example, wasn't a musical style. There was can-influenced Happy Mondays. There was jangly baggy stuff happening over here. Um, I remember, I think, Mark Goodyear's evening sessions once going, and oh, we've got a band from Manchester, live, a band from Manchester. I'm thinking, what are they called? 
didn't even tell me the name. It was just they were a band from Manchester. Um, all right, so so Britpop, we'll, we'll we'll talk about this as we go through the ten songs. Um, but I guess best place to start is the first song, which has been argued that this and the second song was when Britpop started. Kind of. Um, what is our first song? So our first song is uh, Suede's debut single, The Drowners. And this was 1993, right? Yeah. I think. Now, okay. uh, it's, or was it 92? We should check that. <laughs> it was either 92 This is 1992 slash 1993. Facts aren't important. Facts, no. No, not at all. Improve um, anything with facts. Now, um... Yeah, the Drowners is, it, it, it is an interesting representation. Suede did not consider themselves to be a Britpop band. Certainly, at that point, the phrase didn't exist. Like, I mean, it had been used a bit. John Robb, uh, claim the, the journalist, claims to have used did use the phrase Britpop. Um, I think the person, it, although I think it was Stuart, Stuart McConey in NME using it that actually caught sort of caught on, um, sort of entirely independently, but. Uh, at the time, there was loads of different phrases for this, like um, lion pop was another one, or lion rock. Ouch. Which is, yeah, awful. I don't remember that. I remember things like new wave of new wave and mm. all of this sort of stuff. I, mean, I, I don't will, remember lion pop. We will get to new wave of new wave and the scene that celebrated itself and all these kind of proto-Britpop things. Lion pop wasn't even a thing. It didn't. It was what, Basically, it was another example of enemy and melody maker journalists chucking out like music checking out kind of music subgenres and seeing if any of the names stuck which is like is brilliant i love that it's one of the best things about music journalism <laughs> but um sometimes <laughs> that sometimes nothing comes of it and sometimes they be- and sometimes it becomes a cultural phenomenon you know um now suede is interesting because that comes you can date suede's rise back to um an issue of uh when they got in the, on the cover of, Me- of melody maker um, and also on the cover of Select, roughly around the within a with, uh, around the same time, because there was this there was, there was this sense of British of British indie bands. Somebody basically somebody just went, oh, there's a lot of good new bands around who sound distinctly British. Wasn't there a moment? Um, I'm going to jump in slightly. There was a moment. There was there's a famous gig review where I think Suede were supporting um, Kingmaker, mm. and Kingmaker represented this sort of Wonder Stuff esque earlier '90s guitar bands. Mm. And the review was basically get fuck off Kingmaker and all of your your tired guitar stuff. This support act were was a breath of fresh air. Yeah. And I, there was this there was a very pivotal moment where they went, no, no, we're changing now. We're done with that. We're done with the long hair and the sort of you look a bit like grunge bands, but you're not as good. And then now we've got something new coming along. And that's the other thing is is Brit, is early Britpop being an, in being in op, defined in opposition to grunge. To Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Smashing Pumpkins and 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 and, and Alice in Chains and Soundgarden and all of those bands are coming over and the British rock bands that sounded like them and then you still had these kind of slightly hoary old rock bands that were still lurking around. You still had you know um, like Gun and Thunder and Skin uh, and um, <laughs> and you know that, so there was it, still this kind of thing in British rock that, that still was enthralled to America and they suddenly somebody just went oh hang on there's loads of quite sexy British sounding bands knocking about bands who kind of links together um, essentially Bowie T-Rex and the Smiths. And then with a dash of post-punk that, that was kind of, and you had bands like Denim, Pulp, 
at the time, like the kind of early nine, the very early nineties version of pulp and suede kind of almost accidentally became the poster chip children for it. And then enemy and melody maker got obsessed with them. Um, and they kind of became, yeah, they were the, they were the, they were the, the kind of flag bearers, the very beginning of this. Oh, look, there's exciting new British music happening. Uh, at the same time, Blur was still we're, we're, we're knocking them out. Blur had had a massive hit. Like, if you, we'll talk about Blur in a bit, um, but um, it was Suede that were the first time where somebody went, looked at them, pointed at them, and went, "Ah, new British pop." And that and this, is why and this, their first album was the, was what the, the fastest selling album in history up to that point. Yeah, it was one. It, it broke records. It was, a, it was an extraordinary. You, people forget how big that record was. And for an indie band, an in, like a, an indie band to have a number one a number one album, um, was really uncommon at the time. Like it 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 sticks out. Give it two years later, and the album chart is entirely indie bands. But like the 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 landscape of 1992 and 1993 was for you know you look at um bands like the wedding present who were selling decent amounts of singles they were selling 150,000 like 15,000 singles of in 92 when they did the singles club thing um but they were still only scraping into and it seems absurd now that you sell 15,000 singles and you scrape into the top to the you know the top 20 uh but you know they weren't. They, but these bands didn't sell in those huge numbers, and then that Suede record went absolutely huge. But um, I mean, the Drowners wasn't a massive hit single. The, you know, further on down the lines, when you get to Animal Nitrate and um, Animal Nitrate, so young, Metal Mickey as well. Those were the the, the hits. But it was the Drowners that was the one that got the people up and took notice. Partly for the Drowners, the, and also partly because of the B side, because I think it's I think my insatiable ones is on the is on the is, is a B side ah, okay. of the Drowners, which is like a classic suede moment. And you had you could you got that got that single, and you could hear both this kind of stompy, stroppy glam rock thing, um, or <laughs> the glam racket as the full later went on to specifically <laughs> target uh and but it also had this kind of swoony kind of smithsy um uh very romantic kind of slightly decadent side to it as well and it worked wonderfully and i think it, it and that's what kind of kicks this whole thing off all right so before we continue um i mean i well this was like 93 when uh, suede sort of hit the indie dance floors and i'd been going to indie clubs for maybe about three or four years by that point and i'd seen i'd seen dance da- i don't want really to say the word dance crazes um change and not sort of like when people have moves etc but people just started dancing in different ways you know there was the baggy shuffle back in the early 90s and then where I'm from in the West Midlands there was a lot of sort of wonder stuff and pop will eat itself and head shaking from side to side um whenever the Smiths came on People would do the Smiths dance, which involved waving an arm around and stepping forward and backwards. And then suddenly there was this androgynous, <laughs> this androgynous lead singer. And it was almost like overnight there was 20 Bretts on the indie dance floor. Bum slapping. Uh, I always call it the um, invisible tambourine hitting on the side. <laughs> there was overnight, overnight. And I remember going, um, What's just happened? I mean, because the Drowners sort of passed me by. Um, and Next Band was the one I was massively into at the time, for the reasons I'll get into. Um, and I just remember going to, I think it might have even been the Dorchester in Wolverhampton. Maybe it was, maybe that's the right year. And just going, what happened last night? I didn't get, a, I didn't get the memo. Um, 
are we all doing this now? And yeah, I started having my inv- my invisible my invisible tampering quite quite quickly because it, it it seemed to work. Um, but yeah, I mean, the impact that this had in the early days on those sort of Friday night indie clubs where you know they'd play everything for half an hour. You know, there'd be half an hour of loud stuff and the half an hour of electronic stuff, and then suddenly there was this sort of glam for want of a better word, uh, coming back, and everything did seem to shift. Um, was Do you think the impact was as fast as I remember it, or am I remembering or do you think it sort of took hold? Because often a lot of these are bottom-up, yeah. even though the music press like well, to think that they, you know, invent. I think you can you can pretty much trace the the invisible tambourine phenomenon and the, the the slapping the trademark, mic. yeah, <laughs> slapping the mic again, the slapping slapping the pretend microphone against 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 your ass thing, specifically to the nineteen ninety three Brit Awards, which is when ah. Suede performed Animal Nitrate, and um, and you have a huge television audience, and like you know everyone suddenly saw because it's a you know we have YouTube now, and we know what every band looks like, like it's not. If you were into into your indie bands at the time, if you're into alternative music, you didn't like, you know, there was MTV, there was like the chart show, whatever. Like, there wasn't necessarily that much opportunity to 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 watch a band live if you didn't go and see them. So, like, Top of the Pops was, was one thing, and then, but the Brit Awards, massive, huge TV TV audience. There's Brett Anderson shaking his thang, um, slapping it, slapping his ass, and. Um, basically pouting and camping it up um, in like a proper Mark Boland way as well. Like it was very specifically so, Mark so Boland. This would have, so this would have been the year after the Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine, Philip Schofield rugby tackle incident, which almost goes back to the when Kingmaker were told, it's your time is over, we've got the new ones. So there was this sort of seismic shift. Yeah, and um, that's within months as well, because I might be wrong about this and we need to check it, but I'm pretty sure Smash's Pole Winners Party would happen toward the end of the year. It would be a kind of around okay. Christmassy thing. The Brill Awards happened at the beginning of the year. So if I'm right about this, and I might not be, <laughs> that that shift is within a few months. Like you've got Smash's poll winners December, you've got Brit Awards February, um, and you can you can almost like that sh- that shift in indie culture could almost be there. That's where the knife can come down. But I might be wrong. It might be an entire year before. <laughs> so in which case, I apologise. <laughs> I mean, I'd like to say I'd like to say that I'll check it and edit bits out, but I'm, I'm probably not going to. Um, but this is a, this is a good time to, to move on to the next song. We already mentioned the idea of sort of railing against grunge. And the next song was claimed to be a song whose success was destroyed by grunge because it just didn't sound grungy mm. enough. Um, what have we got? So we're going to do uh, what I think is still Blur's best bit, best single, Pop Scene. Which, Correct. Uh, I, I, which is a song I can... I mean, it's a, it's a punk song. It's essentially a punk. Blur, the, the, punk, the punk influence on Blur is often overlooked. But actually, there's a lot of, there's a lot of punk and post-punk in Blur, particularly in, in Coxon's guitar playing. Um, it's a, there's a re- Pop scene is a really interesting point of the story because Blur had hits. Blur, you know, um, There's No Other Way was a huge hit, but it was a baggy song. You know, it was... The, yeah. when, they went to, um, when they went to tour America in 92... Uh, they were consistently called a Manchester band. Uh, they were constantly asked if they were from Manchester because they sounded Manchester. And in America, as far as anyone knew, the cool 
British music was Manchester was was Mancunian indie indie like it was the Roses it was it, it was the Mondays that sort of thing. Um, so you get this this moment where Blur go on tour. Pop scene comes out after this tour ninety two. They go Blur go Blur um, realize they're being ripped off by their manager, um, and they sign to a big management company uh, to kind of and it was it's really touch and go. They might split up. They might have to go bust, and that would end the band. They sign to a big management company, and in order to pay off their debts because of their mismanagement. They get sent to this massive on this massive American tour that is sponsored by a t-shirt company. And the point is that if they sell enough t-shirts, it, which they do, it essentially will dig them out of the hole. So that and, and it's not just like when when the first Blur album came out, they went off and they, they went over to the States, but they did that classic British um, British band on uh, first trip to America thing of playing New York, LA, a couple of other places. And they're hipster towns, they're, they're, they're music towns. They've got a big audience of people who appreciate this, who know the cool kids who know what they are. And they get to go. Uh, so they've they'd done big successful gigs, uh, and they felt cool. They felt like you know upcoming British rock stars. And then when they came back, now they're on this grueling months long trek across the country. And if you've ever done America by car, that like uh, by road, that country is. I've told in America that country is far bigger than it has any right to be. People drive for five miles to go to a gig and don't consider it that far. I so you know, that was a grueling trip, and and what they found is whilst they had a they had a following in LA and in New York and in other sort of music towns, everywhere else they played, no one knew who they were. They were like it was that proper Spinal Tap thing of turning up for the in-store signing and there'd be no one there and and there's nobody there. And they drank themselves into stupors. They they punched. Each like they all had a black eye at one point because the, because they kept getting into fights. At one point, Graham Coxon breaks every mirror on the on on the bus. Like it's a but what happens is they the Americanism of it starts to really great, particularly on Damon. Um, you know, he's listening to the shipping forecast on Radio Four to get to sleep to to remind him of home. For they're getting really homesick, and Britishness starts to become really important to them. So the first fruits of that, they come back energized, like. Like knowing knowing they're going to do something different, knowing that whatever happens next, it's not going to be kind of, you know, it's not going to be kind of mushy. It's going to be direct and targeted, and it's going to sound British. And that's where pop scene comes in. And you listen to pop scene, and yeah, it's got that post punk, um, that that post punk kind of howling guitar stuff, but it's also got that brass on it. And that brass, yeah, that's madness. That's you know, it's that it's it, it sounds like the king. There's a, there's kind of the kinks in there, and it's almost more like what makes suede have got a very, that the drowners is and and that first and the, the early suede singles are very seventies glam rock, but Blur are channeling kind of uh, they're, they're channeling at this on the one hand like XTC and Wire, and on the other hand the Kinks and Bowie. And not Bowie in a kind of glammy, kind of um, perf- like preening performing way, like like Brett Anderson is, but Bowie in a kind of the classic songwriter of hunky dory kind of way. Um, so you get this razor targeted kind of thing that they all think is going to be a huge hit as well, uh, and then of course it's not. It dies a death. Yeah. And this was a non-album track back when albums were a thing, and yeah, you could have non-album singles. And there is a, actually throughout the story, there are peppered great non-album tracks. Um, there was a, there was a definite thing within Britpop of great of, of, of like the kind of midpoint album tracks. And there, but actually, it's interesting you're talking about dance floors because this whole period also sinks in with that because you know, while Suede are 
killing it and getting all this recognition, Blur are basically an alcoholic roadshow. Um, and they are the, like, they, they can be found most nights, like in, uh, there's a club, I can't remember what it was called now. Um, it, it ended up being called Metro. It was underneath the Astoria on Oxford Street. It's not there anymore. Uh, it got demolished for the, for Crossrail, which I'm still livid about. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, they'd be always, that Syndrome, it's called Syndrome. And you go down there and you'd get, you know, you'd, you'd get Brett and you'd get Justine and you'd get, and you'd get Damon and you'd get Kurt and Courtney if they happened to be in town. And it was just a sticky flawed indie club, but like it became like, it became known in the NME pages as the scene that celebrated itself. Uh, that's what they called it. Um, and yeah, the, that all kind of sort of tied it together. Uh, but yeah, they, they, but they blur us still this slightly drunken, sloppy mess. Like they played a, an enemy gig with Swade on the bill at the Kennish Town Forum and Swade blew and Swade blew them away. Blur were pissheads. Uh, it was a famously like kind of they had they got a talking to from their manager and basically told like if you don't sort this out, if you don't like book book your ideas up and be professional and turn it out on stage, then we can't help you. Nothing's gonna happen. And then around the time they were on the roller coaster tour as well, which is a really interesting point. Oh my god, yeah. Uh, I forgot about the roller coaster like, tour. I'd I would I would to go home to go back in time and go to the roller coaster tour, I would I would sacrifice one of my less useful limbs which if you don't know the roller coaster <laughs> tour the roller coaster tour was my bloody valentine the jesus and mary chain uh blur and dinosaur junior which doesn't sound like a cohesive lineup <laughs> um, but but then that's because you think of blur as either being this kind of slightly wishy-washy mushy baggy sound or by or the ava banana knees up mother brown um <laughs> oi gore blimey Blur, but actually, Blur are an art rock band. They're a punky art rock post punk yeah. band, and so they actually fit that. That they fit that lineup really, really well. But that is what people thought of as like the cream of alternative of an alternative rock tour. Like you know, what's the British version of Lola Palooza? Well, we'll pay for Dinosaur Junior to come over, and then we'll stick like Blur, the Mary Chain, and uh, and My Bloody Valentine on. The thing about that tour, that I remember even at the time thinking it was weird. I mean, Lollapalooza was basically all the US had in terms of sort of big indie festivals. I mean, we still had, we had Glastonbury, we had Reading Festival. We, you know, we, we had this tradition, which has since exploded. And also we've had, we've talked to guests on other pods about how a lot of these, when you're 18 in America and, I don't know, Blur come to town, you can't go and see them because they're playing in a place with a liquor license. So the idea of 16, 17-year-olds in England going into an 18-plus venue and just seeing all our favourite bands as they're coming up in these sort of dirty, dirty places, it's, it's almost, it was almost impossible for a lot of American kids. And so what having Lollapalooza was their first, was their big thing. And trying to replicate that in the UK when we had stuff I remember finding that really, really and odd. It's so different from Lollapalooza. I mean, Lollapalooza was literally a music festival. It's like going to Reading, but it goes to a different town every day, like, like every show. Whereas, like, whereas the the roller coaster tour was essentially just a gig. Like, it wasn't. It wasn't outdoors. It was. It was in. It was in theatres. Well, it's more like the um, enemy shockwaves. <laughs> yeah, exactly tours that. that. Came it was later exactly and stuff that, like yeah. that. And you can tell the cohesiveness of the British music scene based on the lineups of those kind of tours. Because if you go and say there, you've got four fairly disparate bands. Um, One American grunge band, one shoegaze band, uh, Blur, who are kind of 
identity. Well, they don't know what they are. Yeah, at the moment. exactly. That's it. And 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 the Mary chain. Where would you put the? Why did you put Jesus Mary chain? Anyway, um, noise. Noise. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I thought it meant noise. I mean, they're all noisy bands. Like Blur are a really noisy band at this point. They're a loud, abrasive, noisy band, um, and that's kind of the thrill of them. But they're also messy and unreliable live. But pop scene. Pop scene is this golden moment. Pop scene, although it it disappears when it comes out, it doesn't. It isn't a hit, but it is like a manifesto. Pop scene is the musical manifesto. It's the template of what they're going to do next. It's sharp. It's direct. It's it's got a certain amount of wit to it. It's got kind of loudness and and punch. And it's but it's also critically got those horns which make it a really 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 British sounding record. And it's like an impossibly exciting song. Um, and whenever you see them live, it's still fucking awesome when they play it. I saw I saw them at the I saw them at one of their reunion shows at Rough Trade. Like it was like the second gig they played after Graham Coxon joined again at the Rough Trade Records, and pop scene was one of the best things I've ever seen. Graham fell over during it, and I thought that was perfect. I, oh, the thing is, it always had. I mean, I'm, my cards on the table. I was always Team Blur. Um, we had a we had a friend who worked for them, and so. When it was like, well, which Britpop bands you like? Well, we like Blur because our mate works for them. And um, but so from from I became aware of the reinvention at pop scene, and I loved pop scene. Um, and a lot of people think their reinvention came with modern life is rubbish, but they'd already done it mm. and just failed a little bit, and then just doubled down. Yeah, uh, when they moved on to moved on to the next album, um, it's probably a good time to segue into it. Um, so. As you will know, if you're listening on our website or on our Mixcloud, you're going to hear pop scene. If not, well, then not. This afternoon, I watched, I rewatched the pop scene video just before we continue. And it's basically the precursor to song two. The track is... this. It's the same video. It's the same track, kind of. Uh, Damon's bouncing around a lot. Um, yeah, no, absolute banger. Um, so before we move on, we let's, just wanted to... Uh, listeners will know that I always move on and then remember there's something we need to talk about. So now we're looping back to talk about the thing that I, I moved on from. So, Mark, have you got anything to say about pop scene that, before well, we move on? Is, <laughs> a glimpse behind the curtain is we're not listening to the songs right now. The songs are being dropped in later. And I just sat here thinking... When you announced it, thinking, God, I wish I was listening to that like scything guitar that kicks and that siren that kicks off pop scene because it's so exciting. It's so good. Alex Alex James is a really underrated bass player. I, I think his lines are amazing. Um, but it's like Alex James is a great bass player, but there are too many crimes against uh, music and culture over the years. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that, yeah, that, 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 that can't be forgotten about. <laughs> but yeah, it's a uh, yeah. And you're right about you're right about the song two thing, and it shows you how how right Damon was. Like because when they repeated the trick, what six years later, a lot less, a lot sooner than you kind of think. Looking back, the the gap between song two and pop scene is not actually that wide in time. It's like five years. <laughs> um, but like, it becomes their biggest hit. It becomes a song that, that their biggest worldwide hit. The biggest globally. global I, song they ever had. I moved. I'm, I moved to the US for a few years, ninety eight, and within two days, I was walking past a, a pizza restaurant like pizza takeaway, pizza place, and song two was on the radio, and every single person who was working in there was shouting, "Woohoo!" And I was like, "Oh." I've made it. That's nice. <laughs> um, so, um, if I'm going to use this analogy a lot today, particularly later on, um, if Britpop 
was a football league. You, obviously, you've got your Blurs and you've got your Swades, um, who are the your Manchester Cities and your Liverpools. And then you've got the cool coming in fourth, fifth place t- t- sort of bands. And and the next band is is one of those. Maybe they never won the league, but people think they did once, but they didn't. I think who have we got? I can think of another band coming up that would probably prefer to be Manchester City. <laughs> Just out of- <laughs> Oh, yeah, I know, I know, I know. But, um, um, yeah. but no, so we're going to talk about Pulp. <laughs> because this is, a, the, the, yes. like, I'm talking about, we're going, we're going in sort of a timeline order here. And you get to this point where... Britpop will later become the biggest musical phenomenon in the country. But 92, 93, sort of into 94, what it actually is is this bubbling kind of... It's an indie scene. It's If you like indie bands, you've heard of it. If you read The Enemy, you know these bands. But Pulp starts to uh, come along at the same time as... Well, I mean, Pulp have been around for years. Pulp have been around, like, Pulp have been around since the early 80s. Like, the, the Pulp's first Peel session was before I was born, and I'm 41. Like, I still find that I, I still find the fact that Pulp did a pill session in 1981 completely bizarre. Um, but you know they they'd been around the, for years. They were kind of a little bit of a kind of not exactly a joke, but it was kind of like oh these lots still here. Um, but then something starts to happen, and it's around the same time. And we're gonna like uh, I'm, I'm kind of gonna loop in the track after this as well because after this we're gonna have Lenny Valentino by the Auteurs. And if you look, if you go back to that that suede cover of Select Magazine, and it's like the British Invasion, the bands they list are Suede, Denim, The Alters, and Pulp, and a few others. But like when you think of Britpop later, you don't think of you might think of Pulp, but you don't you don't you don't think of The Alters. And Pulp are in they're all in that like in that same kind of bracket at the time. And after making some ponderous but interesting records for years. Suddenly, Jarvis Cocker finds his mojo. And around the early 90s, they start writing these incredible pop songs. And the one we're going to play is Babies, uh, which is, you know, it's one of their anthems. Although if you were, you know, if you just got into them from hearing the singles, like when Different Class comes out a few years later, like Babies is not one you're going to know. Like, was was this was this a single before? Do you remember the f- yeah it was. first time, or was this yeah? It's, okay. it's quite a bit before. As babies, and then there was lip gloss, razzmatazz, and then do you remember the first time? So it's actually like ba- babies is goes. It's almost kind of it's got half a foot in the old pulp and half a foot in the in the kind of the pulp that made it. And it's such a great single. And it I, again, we're like the first. I'd say the f- apart from maybe the drowners, the first quarter of the songs we're playing are songs that weren't huge hits. Um, that were but are important because they tell the story. They're touchstones. If you're into, if you're if you're an enemy journalist, if you're a John Peel listener, if you're a, a, a evening session listener, you know these are the tracks you'd be you you'd know. And but these bands, with the exception of the Alters, will become the household name bands within a few years. But they but these are the moments where they're releasing the, what would become classic singles, considered classic singles in years to come. Um, but they're not really selling massively, but they're generating this excitement and they're generating this idea that actually something is happening, that this isn't just um, more of the same British indie bands that have been around for years, that, you know, the wedding present, the, the wonder stuff, probably itself, like, um, like the, like Morrissey, I, you know, British indie bands. 
Happy Monday, Stone Roses. Also, also as I call t-shirt bands. T-shirt Early bands. 90s was t-shirt t- t- bands. Is exactly it, yeah. Um, you know, this wasn't just more t-shirt bands. This wasn't just more student union bands. This was um this was something exciting, something that was that was catching people's imagination. That if you went out to these clubs and bars in London, if you went out in Camden, you would see these people. You would and you would see the gigs, and there was something happening at the gigs. You know, there, there, it's it's suddenly a more exciting time, and there's generally a sense that something is going on, something is bubbling under. People are starting to take notice, and there's all of these singles are part of it. Um, and Suede Breakthrough first. Blur don't break through for a little bit, but but people in the know. Blur were already around, and they and they were already around. You know, they'd already had a massive hit, which years later people don't uh, don't realize was them. Uh, And you get they go, oh, they also did this one years ago because there's no there's no way it's a great track, like it's really good. But yeah, so Pulp and Babies, that's I think is is Pulp's turn when they when people go, oh, oh, this band that did the been around for ages with the weird singer who did my legendary girlfriend and and uh, you know the the and like oh they got good. Uh, I once had a hipster, I had a brief hipster phase where I argued briefly that 80s pulp were better than 90s pulp and then i realized that that was a completely stupid statement (laughs) it's an indefensible (laughs) statement like pulp if you've never heard pulp's 80s stuff there's some really interesting stuff some really good songs as well like like the songwriting was great and there are like there's some there's some great albums they made before they before they became the band that you now think of as pulp, but they're not as good as the stuff they did in the 90s and only a madman would claim that (laughs) But yeah, I, I I think their first great single was was this tune "Babies," which has got all of Jarvis Cocker's kind of seediness and and clever wryness. And I mean, it's essentially about wanking in a cupboard, and who who can't fall in love with a song that's about wanking in a cupboard? Uh, but it's also got this incredible kind of proper proper like pop force behind it, and it, it's like a, it's a genuinely brilliant single. <laughs> So obviously, like we're talking about the you know the headline acts of Britpop, the ones that made it, the ones that you know that are on the best Britpop album ever, um, and you know when there's the ten songs rather than the ones that come out now that have the sort of un, uh, uh, unexplored Britpops. But then you also get artists that a lot of people will go, why why weren't they more famous? Why weren't they more successful? They were pivotal, and at the time they were pivotal. We're moving on. We're going to go straight into the artists and talk about the, that idea. We're, we're looking at Luke Haynes and the Auteurs, a band that have been people have shouted to me over the years. What do you mean you didn't know the Auteurs? And uh, I mean they passed me by. I I have no idea. Totally passed me by. But they have very devoted fans, and they are looked at in history as being really important. And there's so many of them in in these sort of when you've got a scene like this, or you know, we've already said it's not a scene. Of we could probably sit here and name thirty bands that at the time we thought were going to be massive. Yeah, and like, uh, uh, but did but weren't. Yeah, I will throw. So uh, why? Yeah, I would immediately after the auteurs, I will immediately throw you my life story, Marion, uh, Thurman, um, like uh, like right through the whole Britpop gamut. There are loads of these bands that don't that. And we'll talk a little bit more later about the kind of when the industry notices and gets involved, the mainstream industry notices and gets involved, because that that becomes an even more interesting question when you get to that point. Yeah. But around now, so, sometimes... So, but, I mean, but a lot of those bands, you have a lot of bands that are like, 
People loved them at the time, but you can't really argue that there was any form of musical genius going on. Luke Haynes is held up mm. by some as an amazing lyricist, amazing front man. Um, he's gone on to write well, the book with Britpop, My Part and Its Downfall. Yeah, a few um, others. As, as well, and he's still around. And the, the stuff he Why went on do to some do. some people... Yeah, the stuff he went on to do is really interesting. You know, Black Box Recorder, really interesting band. Uh, was it Black Box Recorder? Have I just made that up? It was Black Box. It was Black Box Either Black Box Recorder or Black Box Recording. No, it's Recorder. I just had a bright moment there. I was like, hang on, am I thinking of somebody else? No, I wasn't. Uh, and the stuff, he, like, the stuff he did later, I mean, he, wrote, he made a really great record uh, a few years ago uh, that, was themed around, um, that was themed around 1970s British wrestling. Like, like who, can't, who can't, like, have some time for somebody who does that? I've just invented a theory in my head as we were talking, and it, it may not be fully formed, but out of the four acts we've looked at so far, um, Luke Haynes w- looks like your standard front man with a, with a guitar. Yeah, he does a bit. You know, Damon, Damon, Brett, Jarvis, these were different figures. Mm. These, were, these were standing out front. Either Damon was a pretty boy, uh, Jarvis was amazing because as a kid with nerdy hair and glasses, finally the sort of Gillette the best a man can get idea of what a man should look like was brushed to the side by Jarvis turning up. Uh, and, and Brett was Brett. And you had, then you later on you get some bands bands, but here we've got some guy who could, if you looked at them appearing on Jules Holland, mm. and like, apart from the clothes, you wouldn't be able to pick the type of music. Oh, there's a band with yeah, guitars. It's true. Oh, okay. And that, cause they were, they, you know, they weren't, they were, cause Britpop, like I said, there's pulls from it's it's just indie. It's just indie bands, and that means it pulls from lots of different things. So you've got you've got the bands that came from post punk, and the bands that that were C eighty six Jangle Pop, and and with the auteurs, you've got that. It's an art rock band. They're an art rock band, and um, and I think had they you, you, if they'd staggered it at five like three or four years later, they could have been huge. Because you're right, actually, this those bands that start exciting people, they have frontmen, like they don't have. Like the like later on, they don't have a guy with a guitar who's the who's also the lead singer. Um, they have somebody out front who knows how to work an audience um, and whose personality is is stretched to the band. And I think the auto and, actually- and who gets on the front of Melody Maker yeah. and NME. By looking yeah. as oh, that's Jarvis, that's Brett, yeah, that's Damon, and the auteurs, like there won't be a picture of them on the cover of the enemy, but their name will be there, <laughs> and it was, and it was because <laughs> they were they were grouped in with that with that in the great you know the great hopes of British indie of the time, like they were included. People thought that they were they were one of the bands that were that were there because I don't think anyone writing this stuff was expecting this stadium filling cultural renaissance kind of thing. They were expecting, you know, no one like the Stone Roses is about as big as it's going to get. Like, kind of, you know, a big band, but not like, uh, but um, a one-off. No, maybe not. Maybe the Stone Roses is a bit optimistic, but you know, they weren't. They people were expecting kind of a medium-level success of this scene. Of you know, just this is just the new exciting rock band scene. No one expects it to cross over in it to become the the pop of its the pop of the day, and the auteurs actually were, were one of the few bands who were in that group at the beginning that never really that never really like became household names. They be they they continued to be a page four of the NME band rather than a front page of the Guardian band. 
And I imagine they were also one of those bands that you'll have had people sitting there in 93, 94 going, oh, no, no, I like the auteurs. Yeah. Because they're not, because they're the, they're the, they're the musos, they're the musos band. Mm, exactly. And that's, and there's a place for that. I want there to be those bands. Um, but we're talking about personality, how personalities go through the band. Luke Haynes' personality is all the way through the auteurs. Like that's essentially who they are. But wasn't but wasn't his personality an invention? Yeah, wasn't his personality of, of this sort of? He sang as this sort of posh guy with this weird. But he's it's just some guy from Portsmouth. He, he created this persona. Um, whereas Jarvis was, is, let's be honest, Jarvis is a persona of Jarvis. Mm. Maybe it's more Jarvis than Jarvis. Yeah, it's it's um, amped up, but it's essentially, I think, essentially him. And it's the same with Damon, and it's the same with with Brett. But yeah, you're right. It was there. There, there's a there's a certain amount of you know there's a confection to. Luke Haynes, um, which if you read, uh, which if you read Britpop, my partner's downfall, like he admits right at the front that I am writing this book in the persona of the person I was at the time, rather than the person I am now, which is basically licensed to be an asshole, licensed to to write yeah. it and be a bitch, <laughs> and that's is what he that does. Why they didn't? Is that why they didn't catch on in the same way? Because he wrote that persona as this 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 posh snide. It was very art. It was it was a piece of art. Yeah. Essentially, he was he created this horrible character, and this horrible character didn't catch everyone's attention. In I mean, and let's be honest, the start of Britpop with your Damons and your Brit, your Brits, it wasn't just boys rock anymore. No. Uh, all of my female friends was was were and- were, were they were swooning over Damon and, and Brett while I was swooning over. Um, I was still in swing over Tony Halliday from Curve, but that's a whole different story. Um, but yeah, they were they were pinups, they were sexy, and there was a guy pretending to be a, a snide posh boy. Yeah, and they, it doesn't have that exuberance. It doesn't have that sense of celebration, which is what the what would people. But solid band, good band, great songs. Uh, Lenny Valentino, I think, is their great one, which is the one we're going to hear. But uh, like, uh, but didn't catch fire in that same way. And I think they have a part in the story and they kind of represent the reason I picked this one song because I was like, I've got to pick 10 songs and I want the 10 songs to tell a story. And the reason I picked an auteur song is because they represent those bands that we're talking about, those bands that kind of fired their shot and it, and it missed the mark. And they, they had cults, student union success, but they didn't, they had page four of Melody Maker success, but they didn't have kind of, you know, they didn't have stadium filling success. They didn't have main stage Glastonbury success. And I think that, um, and examining why genuinely is really, really interesting. Why this part of those celebratory British, British indie bands of the very early nineties became like era defining. And this part are a footnote. One of our other guests on this um, was the author, Sarah Marcus, who wrote the book, um, Right Girl, The True Story of the Right Girl Revolution. And she came on one of our pods when we were talking about the band Slater Kinney. And we were talking about how, yes, there were some riot girl bands in the UK, but there wasn't really a, a, a female guitar band scene like there was in the US in the early 90s. Um, what we had in the 90s was all of a sudden uh, this this amalgamation of genders, while you had the loaded and the, the ladettes and whatnot coming at, com, coming through in the mid nineties, you also had a, a scene where our next artist, if you if, if you didn't have the female vocals, sounded like all the other band. Yeah, you know, they all sounded the same. There was there was this sort of 
uniformity, I guess, of a sound. And it did allow female bands to come through. And I'm going to say be part of it, although I'm going to be somebody's going to point out about the sexism in the music industry in the 1990s and how I'm probably not <laughs> um, the right person to talk about it. But we've got, we've got Elastica, who are also connected to Blur, um, because Justine and Damon were together for the 90s? And Suede for the same reason. Oh, God, yeah. I, I forgot about Justine this. Justine was it's in like, Suede. Yeah. <laughs> That's something that gets overlooked <laughs> a lot. Justine was in Suede for the for the from like nineteen ninety to ninety two. Suede got Suede finally found their sound when they when Justine Frischman left because she'd split up with Brett because she'd met Damon, which is why the which really is where their rivalry comes from. Like that first rivalry, is far, like Suede and Suede and Blur was a far more bitter rivalry than Oasis and Blur was. Yeah, yeah, because it was personal. Uh, it wasn't manufactured. <laughs> no, it was literally just like two people who hated each other. Um, but yeah, so you get what's interesting because we're we're basically approaching this tipping point where you where Britpop becomes Britpop. Um, and but slightly before that, ninety three, ninety four, you still got the press dropping subgenres, and one of them was briefly called the new wave of the new wave. And the band that most people associated with New Wave, the New Wave, and the only one that really became successful and sort of crossed over in that way and became part, got dragged into Britpop was Elastica. And Elastica are, there's there's a perfection to Elastica. They are in particularly, well, the first Elastica album anyway. And I think when we're talking about sexism in the music industry, uh, I think in the 90s, I think looking at why, looking at what happened to bands like Sleeper and, and, how Louise Wenner felt that she had to present herself and looking at why there was like eight years between Elastica albums and, uh, and what happened. I think that all, that's all tied up in that, but for a brief shining moment before they became also became the poster child for um, Britpop's flirtation with heroin, because Britpop very much was a cocaine was, was a cocaine based movement. Um, but Elastica uh, flirted in the dark on, on the darker side of it. And, but they were perfect. Like they, those, those, those songs in that first record are incredible. I mean, they're, they're not original. <laughs> like, well, yeah, I was, I was going to say when you sent through the list, I had to double check, wait, was this the one that they were sued? For? No, it wasn't. <laughs> like, yeah, they, I mean, they, they, they lifted bits from wire. They lifted bits from, you know, you can hear the gang of four in there. You can hear they're a post punk band, really like new wave of new wave. I think is like, it's actually, I don't think they're especially new wavy. They're very much, you know, there's more magazine in there than there is Blondie, but they're, um, you know, they, they're, they were a perfectly formed band. Justine's voice, Britishness. The thing we haven't talked about yet is British is the Britishness of the singers, which actually is really important because almost every sing, every band singer, including the baggy bands, sang in a basically an American accent. I, I, and but what sets apart Brett and Damon, especially, um, but also Jarvis uh, is and Justine is the Britishness of their accents coming through. They're singing in their own accent, which is not common. It's still not that common for you know, most British pop stars. Most British singers you see will sing in a mid Atlantic accent. They will, they will even like Adele does not sing like she talks. Damon Alban does. <laughs> oh, she should. She <laughs> should sing like she talks. It'll be amazing. <laughs> yeah. I might listen to Adele then. Yeah, yeah. I would, it certainly add, add, a, add a texture to her work that I think would make it, uh, would make it more palatable. 
or less, depending on who you are. But um, yeah, they, and Justine does that. She said Justine is there's a British. I mean, and she's actually she's she's got quite a cosmopolitan background, you know. Like, and she came from yeah, she came from money. Like, there's no there's no um, she was a, there, there's a lot of posh girl slumming it that was thrown at her, and it wasn't without some foundation like justin frischman's dad designed it was the architect that designed center point which is one of my favorite okay. bits of trivia but then i mean damon it's not like it's not like damon orban no I mean, he was hardly sold the earth, was he? like you know the, the art, art, yeah. like his mum was an art teacher Joel smith's yeah. yeah um i mean when you get when you're looking at, at the rest of blur they're they're them you know they're they're suburban middle class rather than kind of actual than rather than kind of you know properly privileged wealthy um damon comes from this very middle class background although lived although he manages to stake his claim to laddiness by living in poor areas um the rest of blow were a bit more kind of suburban a bit like you know it's a bit it was they weren't uh, alex james's family were not like massively well off graham Coxon's family were not massively well off uh, whereas damon's family were actually kind of you know, they they were maybe not wealthy, but certainly, but certainly very cultured in the middle class kind of teachery, culturey way. Um, but Justine comes from came from proper posh. Like, you know, her dad was an architect who designed a building that you can that dominates the London skyline. That's pretty um and and overlooks the club where she went out every night, <laughs> um, where the scene that celebrated itself was celebrating itself. But yeah, they you, but Elastica that uh, yeah, they you realize that is when the scene is convalescing when the the when you know we the press are looking at it and going and actually the records are starting to sell these bands are going on top of the pops you know they're actually things are beginning to really really move around this time around 93 blur although modern life have made modern life is rubbish which is critically adored doesn't sell brilliantly but everybody but you know the the industry people the industry is paying attention because there's something happening with that band and elastica are tied to them through obvious reasons and elastica are a really exciting really really perfect band that created these like these clockwork kind of crunchy bass lines and these slashing guitar and it's it's really it's this lovely sonic simplicity it's shiny and sharp and it works so so well and it also brings in a kind of femininity but it's a sort of it's not a traditional femininity it's not justine frischman although like donna from elastica was was a bit more pin a bit more pinopy she was one of one of the you know enemy pinups wasn't she but justine was justine had this kind of cool girl vibe and it wasn't super feminine you know it was big boots and 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 jumpers but it goes back to what i was saying it's very it was very mid 90s um there was a sort of and and a lot of people have there's been actual articles recently about um modern feminists criticizing the the feminist movements of the mid 90s and looking back and go oh what were you doing but it was a very 90s um look and a very 90s image and a very 90s persona that sort of came out and we have to be careful because we're too because we're two white men in our 40s and um not and it's not two men talking about two men talking about women on a podcast (laughs) what (laughs) it's not really uh, i don't think it's really necessarily our place to to to, to, like to take that that apart as much but you but but by but i think we can i'm saying that what you've just said um if you think about how we've just how we 
me and you have just talked about uh, Elastica. We started talking about Elastica. Then we started talking about Blur again. Yeah. And this also was the issue that they had back in the day. Like, oh, Justine, you know, oh, Damon, Damon around. The other thing, this is the first band we've talked about what they wore. Like, yeah, we could have. Uh, actually, did we not talk about we, Brett's shirts? We did didn't we not talk, talk about. We, we shouldn't talk, talk about Brett's shirts, shirts, and we didn't talk about Blur in the, you know, in in the bother boots and the polo sh- polo shirts and the British image number one and all that. We should have done, but we didn't. But we did talk about what Justine Freshman looks like, which is on us. But yeah, that brought. But it did kind of bring in that idea that okay, this is not. But this is not a lads club. Like we like there are going to be. Um, female-fronted bands that are ju- they're going to be just as key to this movement. They're going to be part of it, um, which is which you know made the whole thing cool, and also it made girls more interested in it. Like it, they as well as the kind of pinuppy stuff. You've got like actual role models, um, women who are fucking cool, like looking cool, writing incredible songs, um, and I think and. Like Sleeper, we'll talk about later, but I think you, you can fold Louise Renner in there. Although I think she, she, by her own admission, will talk about the cautionary tale of how she got absorbed in being a pop star rather than being the singer in an indie band. Um, but yeah, it's it all kind of starts to come together, and you start to get a sense that there is an this is crossing over. And there's a time when in 1994, when Elastica are on top of the pops. Uh, with Damon Alban playing um, keyboards under the under his uh, under his um, pseudonym of Dan Abnormal, and I remember watching at the time the thing and having this feeling of like, have we won? I have, have. Is it happening? Is like is the music I like now the now the popular music? I, have we won? And it was a real like it was a real moment. Um, and so I struggled to think about which Alaska song to go with because I think any of the singles from that first Alaska album you could go. Uh, you know, I think Trigger Happy TV might have ruined Connection, which is a shame because Connection's a banger. Um, the one we referred to earlier that is that it gets too close to comfort to uh, to certain other songs, um, Waking Up is a really really good song, but it is yeah it it is not subtle but the one i went for in the end was line up because that slashing guitar as it comes in is brilliant and uh it's a song i think doesn't get played enough so um it's my favorite elastica song so we've already talked a little bit about um the sort of the throwbacks to the 60s and the 70s so you've got your, your sways with your sort of Mark Boland and the glam and certain periods of Bowie um blur by this point of throwing themselves back to the kinks and a bit small faces um other bands later have more of a Beatlesy influence um supergrass turned up with the most exuberant exuberance known to man as a weird cross between T-Rex Bowie and hairy teenagers shouting at you while they cycle past you. I mean, I, I, I could, I know I was never able to place where Supergrass came from. Interestingly, I have met two separate people in my life who had no relationship to each other, who both swore that they knew the person who sold Gaz Coombs the drugs where he got caught by the fuzz on the bus. Both those people are probably talking through their ass because they both can't be right, unless the world is very small. Um, so we've got Supergrass. That was my long way to long way around saying Supergrass. And Supergrass, is, they brought something different. Now we've got a band, um, 
a, a sort of a, tr- a trio of energy and two minute songs and more energy and a lot of Bowie and a lot of T-Rex and a lot of just, I mean, where are these influences coming from at this point? Because we've talked about the disparate threads that, that lead in. Um, and Bowie, there's a bit of Bowie in all of them. Yeah. Bowie, just Bowie's friends all the way through this. And it's uh, no, not, actually the Bowie influence peels off as Britpop goes along. Um, replaced by a kind of Beatles influence that isn't, uh, it's more Beatles and Stones than it, than it is Bowie. Like Park Life, which is released the same time as this next track, um, the album, not the song, has got, uh, has got um, Aladdin Sane and Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust running through it. Like it's, it's proper guitar in both, one guitar in each speaker, like Damon singing, sings like David Bowie, just be like it's unavo- unavoidably does. Um, I actually think the Bowie influence starts because the Bowie influence is more there in the London, the Southern bands. Like almost all of the bands we've been talking about have been Southern bands. Um, and the North doesn't quite get a look in for a while, apart from Pulp, but Pulp were based in London. <laughs> Like by this point, Pulp were based in London. Jarvis, Jarvis had given up being trying to trying to be a, a humdrum indie singer and gone to St Martin's College, quite famously. Um, <laughs> was he studying sculpture? Uh, <laughs> no, but he did meet somebody <sighs> that was. Um, but yeah, so like, but super. What's interesting about Supergrass? Yeah, Supergrass are so young; they're much younger than the rest of these. The rest of the the, the bands we've been talking about, like they are. I like to think of them almost as like, um, if you ever watch RuPaul's Drag Race, these days you're watching people going on that show who grew up watching that show. And uh, so it's, it becomes a feedback loop of the kind of people that go on it with a kind of, seem very similar because they grew up watching it. And Supergrass are the first band that comes up in Britpop who are influenced by the, who come out of a scene that began slightly before Britpop. Like they are almost their own audience. Ash are another one um, who were their own, you know, they are the kids that Ash and Supergrass were the kids that were watching Ash and Supergrass. And I think that's, that's a really interesting point about them. I mean, and they are, but fantastic songs, particularly that first album. Second one, second one as well. In fact, yeah, I don't. Oh, I, I, I love every single Supergrass album. Yeah, they I get genuinely think that they, they are all different and they are all brilliant for for different reasons. The seventies stuff actually, I think, gets more more obvious as go. Particularly T Rex, I think T Rex become a much bigger influence as they go as they go along. So does Suede. Suede go for a T like the mid period Suede, um, the Britpop version of Suede, the version of Suede that wasn't proto Britpop but actual Britpop, the shiny version of that like like they based basically they they were like let's make the slider that was essentially what like that was it wasn't let's make um let's make hunky dory it was let's make the slider let's make uh not electric warrior so much the slider and tanks which are the two kind of most poppy mark bolan records but yeah supergrass very very 70s sounding also there's bone in there i all right their biggest hit lifts directly from um uh from a t-rex single light of love the light of love it will shine are you like me i can't be sure it's like it's a complete like it's note for note uh and they but yeah it's exciting it's young and by this point like 
the industry has taken notice. By this point, Blur have released Part Life, which is seismic. It's like, um, I, I think I read an interview with, I think it was Alex James, or it might be in his book, where he said, like, you know, it's we, we sold however many million records. It's not like, what's the story, Morning Glory numbers, but it means if you're on a bus, someone on that bus has got your album, which I thought was a, a good way of looking at it. But things have stuck, like, suddenly this stuff is big. This has become pop music. This has become, uh, if you go back to the early ni- the very early 90s, indie bands weren't pop music. Indie bands were student music. They were, you know, they weren't teeny bop. They weren't. Now suddenly, top of the pops magazine and smash hits, and uh, and you know that kind of and that kind of thing. Saturday morning TV, you know, those bands are all being brought into the, that scene, that world. They are pop stars now, and it's interesting because. Do you think it was? Do you think it was a particular song, or do you think it was just happening? St- I mean, for me, I think probably girls and boys would be the first sort of. It's indie, but it's pop. Yeah, girls and smash. boys. I mean, I mean, girls and boys defines it, I think. Uh, and there's a real sea change with Blur between Mon Life is Rubbish and Part Life. Like Mon Life is Rubbish is a great record. I think it might be their best record. But there, when you, but then Part Life is a very different album. It is unashamedly coming for you. Part Life is it's dancey. It's you know, it's class. It's an, an attempt to write classic songwriting, to do classic songwriting. If you listen to End of a Century or um, or To the End, you know they are that. That is Damon Albarn trying to make his mark as a classic songwriter, trying to put himself up there with Ray Davis. Like it's you can read, and but also they're bringing in Madness and the Smiths and Bowie, and it's all and like that you can tr- and the Jam. You can hear Weller. And then Weller, Weller pops up around now as well. Weller kind of goes, hi, yeah, yeah. I'm back. <laughs> um, I'm Britpop now. I'm Britpop now. And <laughs> I, suddenly he's no longer... So yeah, so he's no longer Paul Weller who used to be in the jam and then went soul. He's no longer a soul boy. He's the mod father. It's become a big deal by this point. It's like Blur are on the... No, not, they're not just on the front cover of the enemy. They're in the sun. And that's a huge tip. A huge change, and Supergrass kind of become one of the first bands who come into that as it's already yeah. established. Well, Supergrass, I, I was I, as we were talking, I had a quick glance because I couldn't remember Supergrass. Even though they'd been in a band, the Jennifers before they formed in '93. Like we were talking about '93 a few songs ago, and they formed as that was happening, and then turned up with tracks like "Man Size Rooster" and albums called "I Should Coco" and "Caught by the Fuzz." While Damon's writing these sort of "I want to be Ray Davis" type numbers, um, you've got these these three three kids just going, "Hey, way, this is brilliant!" And that's really that filter. It's really in there. And "All Right" is the crossover song. "All Right" is one of the big Britpop songs. Like it's, I'd say "All Right" as a single is probably as big as anything Blur did in that on Part Life. Almost, maybe not Part Life itself, but you know, "All Right." If you were in the summer, the summer of nineteen ninety five, you could not get away from "All Right." Um, the better song though is actually is, is called by the floods, which came out the year before and which came out of fierce Panda. Uh, so it's while you've still, it's still the indie labels that are in, that are running this, that are running this thing. You know, they're, they're not blur on food before they're being totally bought out by Polydor. Um, like 
creation are dabbling in some stuff. They're all these before they're bought out by Sony. <laughs> and um uh nude records is entitled that who signed Suede were an entirely like, you know, in, entirely independent operation. Um it's become it's gonna get more mainstream, it's gonna get bigger. Um but the first super wrestling, like I think it was called the first single, I think it was. Um No, I think it was I think Man Size Rooster was the first. In my in my head, Man Size Rooster, or at least that was the first I became aware of. Caught by the first was the first one um, I heard, and I just remember thinking, just what a record! You know, you listen to it, you just like uh, caught by the first was the first. Sorry, yeah. I've just double checked. It came out. <laughs> you were correct. Came out on first calendar. Uh, played to death in the evening session, and it's such a great piece of storytelling. Like it's like it it gets a story in there straight away. It gets the character of the band and the character of Gaz Coombs as a, as a narrator, as a voice. Um, and it's, it's just all there. It's all there straight away. in this banging short, brilliant, fuzzy pop song. Uh, I, I, I think it's one of the high points of the era. And, and for me, regular listeners to my voice on various parts will know that I love a short song. And we've got 13, 14 songs on an album that comes in at about 40 minutes. We've got two minutes after two <laughs> minutes after two minutes. And it's amazing. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. An album should... Caught by the first. I mean, yeah. If you're, if you're my age and your age, uh, an album should come in on one side of a C90 tape cassette. <laughs> and thank you very much, Supergrass. Although now I'm thinking, oh, there'd have been a, there'd have been four minutes, so I'd have to fast forward to get to the next side. Yeah, I'd, damn I, you, Supergrass! I had that damn exact you. thought, that exact time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, pro- probably a good time to 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 to, to cut out to um, pull by the fuss. So you've already talked about, and we've already discussed um, the fact that now. Britpop was just pop. You know, it was getting mainstream. It was getting into, you know, sort of uh, the, the, the main charts and the smash hits, et cetera, et cetera. Um, for me, the big spillover moment came with our next band. Um, very, very rarely do you get moments. Stone Roses did a little bit, but you get moments where basically your average, and I'm just going to be quite cliched here, football fan, terrorist fan, and your indie kid suddenly liked the same thing. And it was around about the mid-90s where this band turned up, who my mate had turned to me with their first single and gone, they're going to be fucking massive. And I went, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, But very rarely you get this band, then suddenly you've got thousands and thousands and tens of thousands and 20,000 more fans spilling over from different facets of society. And that was Oasis. Yeah, and we're going, you're more than 20,000. I mean, 20,000, 30,000, like a million people applied for tickets to Nebworth. It's I went to Nebworth. Hey, <laughs> was it good? <laughs> I heard it was um, all right. It was, <laughs> see, I I went because a, a mate of mine had some tickets and he didn't want them, so he wanted me to sell them. So I went down, met a mate, they bought the tickets and I had a ticket for free. Um, so I went the Saturday. My main memories were Oasis were quite good. Um, while mass while massive attack were on, a bunch of people started singing "Football's Coming Home," which was really annoying me. Uh, Manics were good. Manics were Manics were good. Um, now my mates went the next day, which was apparently amazing, but also really sad because the Charlatans played and um, oh, what was his name? Um, the keyboard player had just died. Rob. 
something. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so, so they, they had that moment. Um, but yeah, it was good. It was all right. It was, um, it was a big oasis thing in a park. <laughs> <laughs> but like, like you're saying, you cannot, I mean, it's, it's easy to be, particularly if you're a bit of a music snob, which I imagine most people in this podcast, as I am, as am I, are, um, to be dismissive of Get all. Your, I'm a music snob badge from the direct, <laughs> from the, from our website. I'm going to start selling them. <laughs> but, um, like, it's easy to be sniffy about Oasis. It's easy to be snobby about them. It's easy to go, to go meat and potatoes, every man rock, lads, 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 all that sort of stuff, right? You don't remember how massive Oasis were. Oasis were massive in a way that I can't, that maybe the Spice Girls, but I can't think of anything else that had the cultural penetration of Oasis. And they were an indie band. They were, they, you know, they, they formed early 90s, like they'd swept up in the Britpop thing, formed a creation records, very different kind of band. Like there, there's almost musically nothing in common with Suede. Uh, like, um, Oasis are, you know, they're not virtuoso musicians like Bernard Butler was, or interesting musicians like Graham Coxon was. Um, they don't. the The songwriting was straight, very straightforward. It was bar chords. Like poor old Gwigsy McGuigan, the bass player, I rarely leaves his top string. <laughs> and, and Tony McCarroll, their original drummer, was objectively terrible. Like to the point that they sacked him in the end because he wasn't <laughs> good enough to be in a band as famous as they were. But like regardless of the quality of their songs and we can talk about that and we can go we, we can go on about um, back and forth and talk about which of the good ones and when was the point where they became legitimately shit uh like uh it was the year 2000 but <laughs> you cannot under you cannot underestimate and it's really difficult to get across to people if you weren't there how big oasis were and i there are three things that i can that i think prove for me, how big Oasis were. One is in 1997, after doing my GCSEs, I went to Portugal with my family uh, because my cousin's boyfriend's family owned a villa and we had never been to a villa before and it was very exciting. And we found a British pub down the road, which my dad was thrilled about because they sold Bonningtons. And we went in this pub and somebody put What's the Story Morning Glory on the jukebox in a pub in Portugal, full of, on the, on the Algarve, full of people from all over the, the country, all over the UK. Like no one really knows each other. It's, and someone puts on What's a Story Morning Glory from the beginning on the jukebox, every single song. And every single person in that pub sings along to every single word, not just the singles, not just Wonderwall, not just Don't Look, Don't Look Back in Anger. They sing the whole album. Everybody in the pub knows the whole record. And I cannot think of another album where that has happened. Not in my lifetime anyway. And not while I'm paying attention. And I'm sure there are. Um, but that's a level of ubiquity that I've never experienced anywhere else. I can't think of another time where... It was, it, it was basically... It's like an album that is Robbie Williams' Angels done 10 times yeah. in terms of universal knowledge. Yeah. Like, and you can... It's this day. Like you, you, As you expect, you can put Don't Look Back in Anger on in an indie club and everyone goes, sings along. But you can put on the title track. You can put on She's Electric. You can put on Hello. You can like people know that like those those songs have penetrated in a way, or at least had it at the time anyway. I'd never seen anything like it, and I remember even at the time going, "That's genuinely like a big thing." But the other two things that were more universal and less about when I went on holiday um, is 
One, the Mike Flowers Pops, who had a hit with a cover of Wonderwall just a few months after Wonderwall came out with a kind of stylized 1960s pastiche and were nearly Christmas number one with a single that had already been out earlier the year in its early v- version, but people loved the song so much, they went out and bought the cheesy pop version too, the, the pastiche, silly parody version too. Like, it's unheard of. Never, I've never heard that happening at any other point. Like, not in the same year. Uh, that, I thought, was, a, was extraordinary. I remember at the time thinking that. But the, the real one, the real one that where, where you go, this is insane. This no band has I can't think of another band that's ever been this big. Is the time that an Oasis tribute band called No Way Sis recorded a version of I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing, which is referenced in an early Oasis song, and have a minor hit with it. And like they go on top of the pops and they they play, they they pretend to be Oasis, but they sing the new seekers I'd like to teach the world to sing. <laughs> I, a tribute band doing a different song in the style of the band they're a tribute band of get a minor hit. Like that is how fa- people loved Oasis so much. They bought a single by an Oasis tribute band, like in not just a small amount in their thousands. And as we discussed, I think we mentioned it earlier on to be able to get a top 40, I think I actually think it didn't get in the top 40. It was scraped just below it. Uh, but to be able to chart anywhere in the top 100 in the mid 90s, you're looking at sales in the multiple thousands. Like you needed to sell, you know, you could sell a hundred, you can sell 15,000 records to get a top 20 single. Like, so to get even just outside the top 40, you're looking at like four or five, 6,000 copies sold. That's when you think about it, absurd. And I, I, you cannot understand the ubiquity of Oasis around that time. They were so big and they changed it. They changed the landscape completely. They changed what that scene was because they were at first, they were just another indie pop band, indie band who came along and, you know, they, and they have good songs, they have attitude in spades, they're Northern, which is not, which makes them stand out because they don't have the same, they don't have that arch quality that all did the other that big make ones. Them, did that make them identifiable? Did that make them more identifiable to the the, the, the section of people who, who didn't care for your your art college types? Yeah, absolutely. Or your, your, your glams? I think or they did. This, was, this str- was lads. I think there's a straightforwardness to Oasis that, re- that um, when they first came out, and also they were funny and the the bickering and everything and like they actually looked good. I they they the the, the look got quite boring after a while. But Liam Gallagher dressed. No, you know knew how to wear a jumper that man. And like you know they were and they're good songs. That first record especially definitely maybe he's got some really good song. They sound like exciting rock songs, which is why I chose the song I chose because obviously you like which song represents Oasis. Do you want to go with Wonderwall, which is the ubiquitous hit everybody knows? Do you want to go with I don't know like Don't Look Back in Nunga, Ditto, or Live Forever, which is probably the best Oasis song. I'm not, or at least the one that's kind of there was. I, I think. I think Noel was. I read somewhere when they were talking about the whole Blur versus Oasis, who's going to get to the top of the charts thing. And even Noel's gone back and gone. To be honest, it was two shit songs. 
it should have been part life versus cigarettes and alcohol. I mean, there that would have yeah, been a they would you know, they a, would a have been better. better songs. Yeah, although I will defend Country House. I will go to bat for Country House. Uh, Are you okay? Have you had a bang to the head? Should I call somebody? <laughs> Honestly, listen to that record. <laughs> And ignore. Oh, lyrically, it's amazing. Uh, not just lyrically. Listen to the guitar. Like li- when you get to the, like, it's it, the the umpar thing is irritating. It is, and that like for the first like half the like, third of the song or whatever, it's it is quite annoying. Although I I do like the kind of slashy way that Graham's playing it. But then you get to the second chorus, and this backing vocal comes in, the one that goes "Blow, blow me out, I am so sad, I don't know why," and it sounds like Pink Floyd. It's 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 weird. It's it's a completely different kind of thing. It doesn't sound like the rest of the record. Uh, and then you get the guitar solo, which is absolutely bonkers the guitar solo to, to, to country house is this art rock it sounds like he's playing it backwards it has no place in a, in a in a song that sounds like you know madness meets meets like but wasn't that a thing about graham's guitar solos i think damon once called them anti-solos yeah, i mean they are the man was one of the most talented guitarists ever some of his guitar work was just how did he do that? Yeah. Is that was, a thing? It's a deliberate attempt to make it weird. It's a weird song. It's way weirder than you think it is. It's way weirder than you remember. And that blow me out section when it break, just breaks down to that, that doesn't sound like umpar music. That doesn't sound like Cockney Knees Up. That sounds like something really strange. It sounds like Pink Floyd. It sounds like you know, Procol Harum or something. And then... And that actually is one of the secrets of Blur is they were they they were always able to be more interesting than you think. So I actually think Country House, although I think the chorus, it, yeah, is annoying and its general feel of kind of the video did it no favors. That that Damien Hurst directed video of um of the band chasing Page Three girls around a um giant mouse trap game, like that's what really. It was the, it was basically when Keith Allen starts turning up in yeah. bands videos. You know yeah. you know that you're you're doing something wrong. Yeah, I don't think he ever turned up in an Oasis video. No, but but, but he's he... not. But he will turn up again in our story, which is tragic. Um, but but yeah, but the Oasis blur thing becomes massive, and it's it, and that underlines the peak of ubiquity of Britpop. Afterwards, it changes. Oasis change what that scene is. They change what those bands are. What they change what is seen as as like the uh, as as what is cool, um, and that archness that came in that sort of very seventies art school thing that is as much influenced by Roxy music and by you know the and Bowie as it is by the Beatles and and you know Oasis claims to be really uh, are really influenced by the Beatles, but they're not influenced by the the spirit of the Beatles of a band that kind of go through several stages of re- uh, of reinvention in a really short space of time like the beatles move musically so far in such a short time it's it's almost ridiculous and blur are far closer to that than oasis were yeah but yeah. i actually think oasis are more the rolling stones than they are the beatles but um but they're also that classic songwriter singer songwriting sound liam gallagher saying that he he always wanted his his um his vocal to be a cross between john lennon and um, Johnny Rotten, and when you think about it, that's exactly what his voice is. It's a, uh, I I really like that about it. Uh, but because the Sex Pistols are, there's definitely maybe has a lot of the Sex Pistols on it. You can hear it, not because the Sex Pistols aren't as, aren't 
oi snotty punk the sex was a basically a, a rock a beefy rock and roll band when you actually listen to the record and you can hear that same kind of you know les paul turn the fuzz right up everything's like just stick all the faders up um on definitely maybe and it makes it a really exciting record people forget that actually definitely maybe got rave reviews when it came out and went straight in number one and was a big deal morning glory got kind of panned it got really average reviews whereas at the same time the great escape blur's fourth album got absolute like critical adoration when it first came out and she and the entire music music press sheepishly spent the next five years pretending it was the other way around (laughs) pretending that they know they they knew that morning glory was the bit was a classic record and that they knew that blur were on the slide when they released when they released was, the greatest wasn't case. there a, wasn't isn't there an argument you made that blur made a terrible choice to get involved in this sort of blur voices oasis thing that the press had manufactured because blur were massive oasis were up and coming oasis got so much free publicity yeah. With this and Blur, basically could only lose. I mean, they they got to number, they got the number one, but then the next two years they were they were they, were, they had to go off and reinvent themselves. Yeah. So maybe the best thing maybe the best thing that happened to Blur was Oasis. It kind of was. Blur went off and made what I think was Blur's best album, which was yeah. I, Blur, I, I Blur. certainly think there's an argument that that their self titled record is their best record. I don't. I'm I'm not sure it's my favorite one, but I love it. I mean, I like all Blur. I like every Blur album, but um, yeah. So. Oasis, Oasis changed the game. Blur can't even com- like they're they're big on a level that that no one ever expected a rock band, a British rock band, to be in the nineties. They're big in a level. They're 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 a legit a stadium band, and they skip a stage. Like it's traditionally, if you're a ba- if you're an indie band, you play. You know, you come out and you play like the local band circuit, local venue circuit, and then maybe student unions and clubs, and then theatres, and then arenas, and then stadiums. You play Wolverhampton. You play Wolverhampton Wolfram Hall on your first tour. You play Wolverhampton Civic Civic Hall on your second tour, and then maybe you get to stadiums. Yeah. Um, uh, well, there's a stage in between. But you, uh, after after the Civic, after you play the Civic, you play the NEC. That's the next yeah. stage. Then you get to stadiums, <laughs> and because that, yeah, the jump from a stadium from a, from an arena to a stadium, you're going from you're going from a 200 capacity venue to a 500 capacity venue to a 2,000 capacity venue to a 10,000 capacity venue to a 50,000 capacity venue. You you're entering the world of you're entering Queen yeah and state you know levels of and Blur briefly became a stadium band Blur played like one stadium gig uh, um oh where was it uh Myland uh before uh after Part Life came out like they, the Part Life comes out Blur are now the massive the biggest band in the country they play the Alley Pally that famous show at the Alley Pally uh which is which you can, which there's a video of it which I love. Uh, and it's a proper like raucous old time. Like the, there's a bit where Damon dives into the into the audience during "There's No Other Way" and the, all the girls in the front row literally destroy his t-shirt. <laughs> like, uh, and Graham Coxon singing his backing vocal, going, "Please don't kill our singer! Please don't kill our singer!" Ah, um, it's it's crazy. Um, it's Blur Mania, and then they do main, they do they do Myland Stadium, like after they've recorded. They've written the Great Escape, but it's not out yet. Uh, they debut Country House at uh, that gig, and um, and it gets this massive reaction. And the 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 record label and the industry, like the the their, their label people, are just going, "Well, that's the single, then, isn't it?" They wanted they wanted Stereotypes to be the first single, which is a I think is a much much more interesting song. That's the first song. On- it's a mo- it- 
It is a much more interesting song. It is, however, the worst song to ever choose the first time you ever sing karaoke in your life, <laughs> particularly when you can't remember the high bits are coming. You're like, there's something, there's something in here that I can't. Oh, oh, there it is. Because <laughs> that's bless. Yeah, it's pop- a terrible choice. That's, <laughs> that's bless pop star era. Pop star era. Um, but actually, they're already play- they're already like like realizing that they that they're in a bad place. They're already realizing that they're unhappy. Damon is miserable. Like he didn't want to be that famous in the end. Graham is completely miserable. Almost everybody in the band is an alcoholic. And then you listen to The Great Escape, and it opens like I always think. It, I always liken it to um, to uh, in Utro, which sounds weird, but in both cases, both bands, Nirvana and Blur, had these huge, era-defining pop records. Heart Life and Nevermind. And then both of them then make a weird a, a, a weirder album than you realise. And they both open with a discord. And it's really like the, the first chord of uh, on in Utra, serve on Serve the Servants, that it's a deliberate di- discord. The first chord sound you hear on The Great Escape is stereotypes, which go, which starts with it's like it's a discord and it's literally it's 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 a note going we going we are deliberately trying it fails it's a failed attempt at, at trying to change change things up but blur are huge but then no one sees oasis becoming huger they're just another band for a while they're a good band people like them that and it, and they become big very quickly like i said they skip a step they go from theaters to stadiums they basically they do one arena tour and then that's it and they never they're never small enough to play arenas again whereas blur basically they got one stadium show the same as the manics the, the, the peak they got to play one stadium show and then they went back down to arenas again um whereas yeah and uh, then you, the Battle of Britpop. I mean, we, 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 we can't. We, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll move straight into this, the song in a minute, but we can never under, uh, you can never overstate how impressive it was to sell those two days at Nebworth so quickly so and quickly. so many people. And the, if you look at the fan base of that, like Oasis have become, the, in the popular imagination, this very laddie band. And Lad Rock came out of it, and Loaded Magazine, and Oi, and you know Liam Gallagher pinching Damon Allwood's bollocks on a football pitch, and and you know, and they did change. They they Oasis are the band that shifted all that across. But actually, they were not just a bloke's band at their peak. They were a band that everybody likes. And if you watch, there's a documentary that came out last year about um, Nebworth. It's really good, really interesting documentary. I really recommend it. And what's, what strikes you when you watch it is how many girls there are in the crowd um, talking about how they want Liam's babies. And, um, and you know, and it's a, it's a properly 50-50 gender mixed crowd. It's just everybody. And that changes. That, that happens a lot. That um, I think if a if a guitar band goes the distance, like in their the Libertines were the same, like in their peak, like it was a fifty fifty gender split. They weren't a lads band, but now if you go and see them, it's it's very much very it's a very blokey audience. Um, and Oasis did the same thing, uh, but they were they were completely universal, and um, 
And for a while, I think justifiably so. So the song I picked, which we should definitely play because we're getting on with time, uh, um, we're going to play Rock and Roll Star because I think, it, again, it's a manifesto. It's a manifesto song. It's a saying, this is who we are. This is what we do. It could have been Cigarettes and Alcohol, which does a similar thing. But I think Rock and Roll Star is just a really, really exciting song, which they didn't play at Nebworth. Um Noel Gallagher said one of the things he was really surprised about at Nebworth is that they is that he looked at the back tracklist and went, We didn't play a rock and roll star. Were we off our heads? God, the arrogance. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I I think it's the song that sets up why Oasis were an exciting band and the song that reminds you why people were so excited about them and that gave them that that springboard, that platform to become what they became. <laughs> Um, so not to not to go back to the blur thing again. Um, we briefly mentioned in the, in that last very long segment when we were talking about Blur and Oasis about how Blur were in a bad place. There was alcohol, the pressures of being in a band and being the celebrities that they now were were starting to take its toll, which would happen to Oasis later on. Um, another band where there was pressures that started to take its toll was was Sleeper. Um, slightly different pressures, like we mentioned earlier about Louise uh, having the pressures of being a pop star rather than a singer in an indie band. But something other than the music started to take its toll. Um, we looked at Elastica earlier on, um, and then we had Sleeper, who most people would go, oh, there was Elastica, there was Sleeper, Echo Belly, maybe. There was a couple of those sort of, and I'm, I'm very sorry to um, regular uh, podcasts on um, Cherie and Fliss, but I'm going to say female-fronted, um, but even though I know it's not a genre. <laughs> um, this was another female-fronted band, and a relatively successful one, right? Yeah, and yeah, you're right, it's not a genre. It's not Being a woman is not a genre. Uh, but the industry itself and the, and the music press were, were absolutely culpable in it, created a genre of that, uh, of this. They, they siphoned off the corner of of female fronted and female focused in um, Britpop bands. And yeah, there's, um, and sleeper, I think are a band that people are people appropriate enough to sleep on. I think sleeper are great. Like I, uh, what, what do I do now? What do I do now? In between her, um, nice guy, Eddie, like they're really good songs, but they're, they're also a cautionary tale sleeper because if you look at what happened to them, um, it's what happened to all of them is they were bewitched by fame. Uh, you know, Louise Wenner starts off as, you know, a tomboyish, like a tomboyish, the that kind of um, look and, and is very proud of being like, not a girly girl kind of thing. But she is kind of, because Britpop is pop because indie bands became pop bands became the big thing. Suddenly she's a pinup, you know, she's, she's, I don't think she ever went full on sexy pinup, but you know, she's, she's lit. She's in those lists in FHM. She's in the sun because they, you know, they want pictures of the, the good looking girl, you know, and it's, and she is kind of brought into all that and she starts to dress for it. She starts to play up to it a little bit. She kind of, you know, she, as many of the male front bands did as well, they lent into the celebrity nature of it. Um, and uh, but what happens with Sleeper is it kind of robs them a little bit of that because of the kind of that kind of sexist uh, perception of bands around the time. Um, it robs them a little bit of their cre- of their credibility. 
and um, people st- and they stopped being taken seriously. But they were a huge band and a legitimately deserved one. They, you know, there was some. What do I do now? It's a cracking song. Uh, um, but yeah, and if you read Louise Wenner's autobiography, which I, I, her Britpop memoir, which I recommend you do, it's a good read. Um, she is culpable in it. She told she she admits she talks about how culpable she was in it. Uh, she found herself kind of losing her way in that fame thing that she wasn't the girl in the big boots anymore. She was a girl in a sparkly dress, and that's never what she what she'd wanted to be. Um, but she also saw she also was guilty of creating that. Um, that min- that kind of scene within a scene that was defined by the gender of the singer. Like, there's one point where she says uh, she'd heard that when Robbie Williams had made his album, he'd had pictures. He'd stuck a picture of Gary of Gary Barlow to a um, to a dartboard in the studio or something like that. There's a bit in her book where she says, "I wish I'd thought to do that with Sonia from Echo Belly." Like she was, you know, she lent in, but um, but they were huge and they were great. Um, but they, yeah, they they were tamed by the industry and they were manipulated by the industry. Also, um, the phenomenon of sleeper blokes, uh, it, which uh, the what the enemy dubbed the kind of you know the rest of sleeper, the faceless, boring men that stood behind the glamorous female singer. Um, and that's that's dis- that's like I'm not going to say that's dismissive because it dismisses like them as just like oh they're 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 the men they're not important it, it's dismissive because it puts the focus solely on the singer because she's female rather than being a band um a collaborative force the same thing happens to Catatonia uh like the, to an extent the same thing happens to Echo Belly although they're not they're never quite that big. But it certainly happens. The sleeper blokes becomes a thing. Like it becomes, like, um, it becomes an in joke, which must have been like pretty horrible to go through, I'd imagine. But um, yeah, I remember watching another one of those we've won moments. Um, uh, Damon after Part Life and before The Great Escape, I think Damon Alban goes and presents a BBC show on um, top of the pop. No, uh, BBC Two called Britpop Now, and it has pulper on there and pulper on there and uh sleeper and elastica and um marion i think and i loads of loads of bands and it's a really good show but i remember thinking this is on like six o'clock in the afternoon this is this is it like the music i love is the music that everybody loves now um and sleeper are great on that and uh i just remember thinking this is a really, really good band, and my favourite song of theirs. It's a cross between In Between Her and What Do I, What Do I Do What Would I What Do I Do Now. I'm not. I'm still not sure which of those is my favourite, but uh, I'm going to go with What Do I Do Now, which I think has got a real punch to it. Um, okay, so <laughs> on one of our other pods, the temporary fandoms, um, I can't remember which. I think it was the LCD Sound System episode. One of our guests, Chris Whitby, um, basically uses the next band as a metaphor for shit bands. Um, and so we're, we're going to talk a little bit about when a scene starts to manufacture itself and whether or not whether or not the artists themselves, because that is a bit dismissive. Obviously, musicians try their hardest and they want to be in a band, but at some point they are molded to be 
in this case, a Britpop band. Um, we're talking about menswear. Please, no, no, don't skip. Stay, stay with us. Stay with us. We're talking about menswear. Um, a band who I did once go to see in Stoke in front of, interestingly, um, we drove up because uh, my friend knew the Simon, I think the guitarist was, um, and we went for a quick drink with him. His daily allowance to go out drinking was uh, 3.25. He was given three pound twenty five a day to go and spend on sundries. So he bought he, he bought a pint of mild and a packet of crisps. Um, menswear. Um, you sent this list through, Mark, and I saw it and I thought, I really hope he's making a point because this is going to be very tricky. Right. Okay. I'm going to make. First of all, I am making a point. Like fully, uh, I will fully, fully hold my hand up to that. I put menswear on this list because they represent a thing that happens to the scene, a thing that happens to this genre. There are, there are specific moments and there, there's a reason for that. But also daydreamer is a banger and I will not hear a word said against it. It's a genuinely it's, good song. It's not even their, it's not even their best no, song. No, Stardust is their I best song. Saying... It's just, it's just the one that the people like most. Oh, I, I really, I like the one that they basically ripped off Aztec camera. Being um, brave. Obvious. Uh, but... No, no, the first one. Um, I'm happy. I'm something. I'm, I'm, We're going to have to revisit this. I think somehow. Out. I'm happy somehow. I think it was. Um, it was basically an Aztec camera ripoff. Anyway, but yeah. Anyway, sorry. We've so we've we've got daydreamer. Yeah, daydreamer. Um, which, <laughs> by the way, has one coordinate. I have absolute respect for a band that can get a hit single with a song with what. With, uh, uh, a guitar band that gets a hit single with a song with one chord um, and a bass line they nicked off wire. But it works. You know, it works. I actually think it's a really good song. But um, so what is fascinating about this area? You're right. It's exactly, it's a scene that starts generating itself. It becomes self-perpetuating. You know, it's um, it's like eventually, uh, eventually 3D printers will be able to, rep- will, will be able to 3D print all of the, um, all of the elements you need to make another 3D printer. And that's the point when... Um, oh, I thought you were going to say 3D printer will eventually be able to uh, 3D print menswear. <laughs> that will that will come shortly afterwards. Uh, but um, And we can only... <laughs> I, for one, welcome our new pursuited overlords. That, that is an apocalypse I did not foresee. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, like, what happens is record labels because you remember that the mid 90s is the golden age of the music industry in terms of how much money is being generated like it's the last hurrah of the music industry because most of them don't realize what's coming which is the bottom falling out of the arse of the industry it's it's five years away in the mid 90s everyone is on a jolly if you ever read um have you ever read that novel uh kill your friends by day by um uh oh what's his name somebody niven scottish scottish journalist um i i, I haven't it's very good <laughs> anyway it's very good it's about it's about okay. a, it's about a mid 90s um music executive doing a, a shitload of cocaine um and it's it's a proper scabrous like like unpleasant darkly funny book i really i i really recommend it i really enjoyed it you you'll fly through it but anyway not, not my, I digress. The music industry has fully latched on. Like Oasis are on Creation, which is a minor label, but that's how they're owned by Sony. Blur are on EMI, Polypho- um, pol- uh, Polyphone, Polyphone. 
Are they in Parlophone? Yeah, Parlophone. Um, who bought food, um, food records, <laughs> whose singer Dave, whose um, owner Dave Belfi went, took it, took the money and bought a, uh, a house, a very big house in the country. Um, but like Britpop is huge. It is million selling huge. Like these bands are selling in numbers nobody saw coming. In out like and it happens after what's a story morning glory probably is the one that kicks the door down. But And was it was it also part of it wasn't just the Britpop thing, it was part of Cool Britannia. Yeah. And you know, and Tony Blair's coming along yeah. and sort of latching onto it. And there was the the Euro ninety six football and everything just sort of all and it came all into this. It's part of the same brand. thing. And, and it's very telling that the, the the one thing everyone remembers about Euro 96, apart from the penalty, uh, look at me making football jokes like I know what I'm talking about, um, is <laughs> is Badil and Skinner in the lightning suits. Like it's the lightning suits. It's yeah. a Britpop anthem. They, they they write three lines. It's a Britpop anthem. It's a it's a full on Britpop song. Uh, it's a Britpop band fronted by two British comedians. And yeah, there is a cultural moment happening. Uh, and Blair totally leans into it, totally takes advantage of it, um, and um, also kind of rides on it a little bit and probably ruins it. But yeah, cool Britannia. It's suddenly being British, celebrating your Britishness. Like, you know, only five and years. In a, way that when, in a way that when Morrissey tried to do it. That's exactly what I was about to say. Oh, sorry. That's right. <laughs> only five years earlier, Morrissey is on stage in Finsbury Park supporting madness, waving a union jack around, and um, he's accused of flirting with fascist imagery. Now, at the time, a lot of people defended him. I defended him about that for years. Turns out that we were wrong. <laughs> uh, make of that what you He will. was flirting with fascist imagery. Yeah, oh, okay. he was, but, he wasn't just the, but on purpose, like knowingly, um, because as it turns out, Morrissey has unpalatable opinions that many of us might regard as racist. That is the official viewpoint of this this podcast. (laughs) And you notice there that I, as a journalist, am now very aware of how to phrase things in ways that won't get us sued. Now, um... Edit Morrissey bit. (laughs) I've just written down edit Morrissey bit. Um, (laughs) Yeah, waving a Union Jack on stage was seen as being inappropriately nationalistic, as... Um, way as kind of um, conjuring up images of Enoch Powell and the National Front and the Black Shirts and all that sort of stuff. And then it's only a few years later when Noel Gallagher's got a Union Jack on his guitar. Um, and Oasis basically, I mean, it's Oasis that do it most, who embrace the flag and make it part of their image. They make, you know, the, that kind of the, the Union Jack with a swirl made into a swirl. They use that as a backdrop. Um, and it becomes like a pop culture symbol in the way that it was in the in the 60s. And that's because all of this is, is deliberately harking back and invoking the 1960s. It's blow up Carnaby Street. Um, you know, it's kind of... Italian um, job. Yeah, all that sort of thing. Right? Alfie, um, like Mary Quant skirts and Twiggy and all that kind of thing. And it's deliberately evoking that because it's Britain going, oh, that's the last time we remember being being like like objectively impressive on the world stage culturally um because you know time magazine dubbed london swinging london and put it on the cover and then the equivalent of that is in the mid 90s is um uh, liam gallagher and patty kensit on the cover of vanity fair uh, in the union jack bedspread although what a lot of people didn't realize 
is that was only the British cover of Vanity Fair. They, uh, there was a lot made about that at the time. That wasn't the American cover. Like, it wasn't so it wasn't quite the same as Time magazine doing it in the 60s, but people made that comparison. That was a specific point. So there is suddenly like a thing. It's huge. It's the dominant force in in kind of the 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 visible end of British pop culture for a short while. And that means there is money. There is so much money being thrown around because the music industry is seeped in money. It's dripping it. The music industry has only just realized that it can repackage all of the records it's been selling for the last 30 years as CDs and sell them again, which is like every single band, they release the single and like, you, you tell the kids these, you tell the kids these days about multi-format singles. They won't know what you're talking about. But seriously, like you'll remember this. I'm sure most people listening, a lot of people listening will remember that. Like if you bought the new Oasis single, you had CD one, CD two, a cassette, and a seven inch. Like, and they'd all have different B sides. Which is why there's so many good B sides from the bands in that era because they were constantly they had to churn them out. And actually, it, it, the create that creativity kind of pushed them to make. So that that um, necessity kind of pushed them to make some quite interesting creative choices with their B sides, and that's why like, Oasis famously are very strong B sides bands. So were Blur, so were um, the Manics. That, that the Blur was. singles collection was amazing. Um, I, I've mentioned this on the podcast before. Um, I was talking to somebody I don't know who's pushing thirty now. I think whatever. Yeah. It was quite young, uh, but not as young as he should be. And, and I just went. Yeah, so we used to have to, if if you wanted some music that I had and I gave you that music to listen to, I couldn't listen to it <laughs> until you gave it me back. <laughs> it was gone from my life. Yeah. <laughs> Fancy that. That was, it's, it's, it's unthink, you know, and we, that we can go on to that as a completely different subject because we could be on that all day on the impact of, um, all music available all the time and why that's interesting and why that is both good and bad and interesting and why, like, I would have killed to be able to listen to any music. I used to fantasize about like if I ended up on the on uh, if I if somebody like like zapped me and put me in Star Trek because I was cool. Uh, and I was I remember specifically thinking when I was like 13, 14, how cool it would be. So because they had the computer in Star Trek and they used to go, oh computer, play whatever. How cool it would be to say, computer, yeah. play the new whatever album. And they'd just have it. And it'd just be in the computer. And that was literally science fiction. Now I can yeah. literally do that at home. <laughs> it's it is weird. Anyway, so yeah, multi-format single. And actually, Blur Oasis and multi-format is that's why that Blur won is because Oasis released a CD and a seven-inch, and, and Blur released two CDs and a tape. Uh, the CDs sold wow. more or less the same, but the tape outsold the seven-inch, and that's why Blur won the Battle of Britpop. Um, but yeah. You, um, there is so much money in the music industry and uh, that only ever ruins it, <laughs> basically. It- and, 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 that, and that ends up with this ultimate manufactured um, band of menswear, yeah. which we were talking about, um, and starting dreaming. These, they, I mean, menswear weren't necessarily a manufactured band. They weren't put together by a record label. They were put together by themselves. But that what they were... But they were packaged. What they were, yeah. They were a load of... Is, they were some scenesters who hung around in the good mixer in Camden and f- had great haircuts and nice shoes and, formed a ba- and decided they were going to form a band and get massive. And because of who they were, because they were known people on the side, they 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 were they were they were well connected. They were cool kids. They knew people. They drank in the same pub, in the same pub, basically. 
as the A&Rs. The A&Rs just went around Camden looking for bands they could pick up. Um, they famously got like a bunch of offers after four, after one gig in which they played four songs. Um, and there was like, people were just like, oh, then the next big thing, because they were good looking lads, dressed well, playing sharp, poppy, pop, pop indie. Um, and they weren't the only ones. There were loads of bands like that. Um, like the audience, for example, who came along about a year later, Sophie Ellis Bex's original band, the audience were, for, were, were, were formed because their guitarist, Billy, uh, Billy Reeves, uh, made a bet with somebody that he couldn't form a band with. It just, it was like, I, I can form a band with, I'll get a girl singer. I'll get, I'll get assigned for X amount thousand pounds for X thousand pounds, um, to a label and we'll, and we will have hits and somebody bet him he couldn't do it. So he went out and did it. He literally just found somebody on the street to form a band with and wrote some songs, but you know, they were, they were a package. You look at them and there was Sophie Alice Baxter, like who looks like a pop star. Um, the songs were pretty good kind of smithsy kind of, um, you know, and at that time you stick a guitar in anything and it, and it sounded like a hit. And, and around that time, there's so many bands like this. Like, um, you are too old to have watched Biker Grove, I'd imagine, because you're slightly older than me. I'm aware of Biker Grove, and I did watch the final episode when it happened, which I'm glad I did because it was the most batshit crazy thing the world has ever seen. I wrote an article about that last year, and I, I interviewed the director and the writer about that episode, and it was fascinating. Uh, I will send it to you, but if you go, to, if you search Mark Burroughs, which is me, uh, on, Den, on the Den of Geek website, there's a deep dive on the final episode of Biker Grove, which because um, it is genuinely batshit. But we digress. Uh, after Anson Deck, as PJ and Duncan became pop stars, they went looking for Biker Grove to find the next one, and they um, and Donna Eyre, who became a kind of loaded magazine style TV presenter, and another girl in it whose name I can't remember. Um, were plucked out and formed a band that were called Crush, which is a very Britpop name. And um, they were stuck in a studio and they essentially made a Britpop, made what sounds like a, a Britpop record. It's called Jellyhead. Um, it's not, it's actually all right. Uh, it sounds like Republica. You know, it's got all of the, th- the guitars. It's got the attitude. It is a self-consciously Britpop out. Britpop record made to be a hit, not made because in the way that in that romantic way that we think about our, our indie bands, our rock bands, our, you know, quote unquote, serious singer songwriters, um, you know, tortured artists sat in their bedsit, knocking out masterpieces that, that, that then become million sellers. This was a cynically put together record label, um, professional songwriters, Two people, two young girls who are in a who are in a TV show, like and menswear are a good represent that. Like actually, menswear are quite good, and that's um, like. Uh, but essentially, you know, they got flown all around the world by they they like got different record labels to to fly them places. They they played them off each other. Um, they knew they there was a bidding war for menswear because the amount of records that Blur and Oasis had sold. Um, and it was the, you know, it was the last days of the, it was the last days of Rome. You know, it was carnage. It was unbelievable amounts of money and drugs, uh, unbelievable amounts of hubris, like a lot of bad records, but doing well because 
Yeah, and there are some good bands around. The, 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 like a lot of those good bands, uh, those bands around the area, still look like if basically if you if you looked good and you were wandering through Camden High Street carrying a guitar, you got a record. You you you'd walk in one end with a fl- with a falafel wrap and walk out the other end with a record label, with a record deal. Like it, they were signing anyone who looked the who looked part. And there was like a that classic: we throw as many of these at the walls and we see what sticks. Um, and sometimes they were sadly what stuck. Was menswear. Yeah. I mean, I still maintain this record. So, I don't know. Make your, if you've never heard this record before, make your own mind up. See what you think. Um, I think it's actually not a bad track. Uh, but yeah, menswear were a representation of the beginning of the end. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm getting quite conscious of, of you, dear listener, and your time um, listening to two guys waffle on about the 90s. Um so what we're going to do in this episode is a little bit different. We're, we're not going to go to the 10th track and then come back and then go off to the end credits. We're going to end on the 10th track. Um, we've had some big rambles, particularly about the Blurs and the Oasises, and we've also mentioned a lot of other bands, although at no point did we mention Dodgy or the Blue Tones, which I was a bit surprised I was going to bring up the Blue Tones, um, but then again, um, like... There, there are some iffy recent revelations about the Blue Tones that have... Oh, God, yes. Yeah. I, yes. <laughs> Britpop's Me Too moment has come, and uh, the Blue Tones were the first band to be taken down. So, um, but although I actually really liked I really liked the Blue Tones, that first Blue Tones record I, it, I thought was amazing. Uh, I, I'm shamelessly populist when it comes to Britpop. I was like 16, 17, well, th- well 13 in 1994. Like, by, by the end of the 90s, I was... I was 18. Like that's prime era. I was, I became a music snob. I got into weird stuff and, and, and underground stuff and, and, you know, worthy stuff, but I'm pretty shameless about loving the big, big Britpop bands. I still do. And I actually, the blue tones love them. Gene love them. Um, dodgy or um, the second Gene? album is really good. Um, but, uh, Dodgy were the sound. Dodgy were the sound of every summer. They all. They always had a. They always had a top ten hit in every single summer. It seemed. It seemed. Um, right. So we. If we had to look at the big heavy hitters band wise, well, we've covered the main big hitters band wise. If we had to talk about the big songs that summed up, you know, we've we've avoided playing girls and boys and part life and whatnot uh, as we've gone through this, but we're ending. On what can what is you know is is an is Britpop's anthem? Um, also, it was stolen by the from the Rolling Stones, and they had to they didn't get any money for it. But what have we got? What we're we finishing on? What, what what are we ending on? Uh, we're finishing on Bittersweet Symphony, and I'll tell you for why. <laughs> because post Oasis, the end, the tail end of Britpop, as I said, last days of the Roman Empire, too much money, too much drugs, a lot of bad records. But also, Oasis changed what it was. It starts off sharp sexy like um arty uh, oasis come along and they introduced this kind of button shirted meat and potatoes rock element to it and that becomes the primary factor the primary form of the genre brit latter brit pop 96 97 98 99 when it kind of finally sort of peters out and 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 Things move on. Basically, the Spice Girls come along and steal all the sexy bits and the pop element, the big like the 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 stuff that that your younger sister is interested in. And what's left becomes very, very. I mean, a lot of it very boring. 
and you get bands like Northern Uproar and Cast. You, you know, I've not. I don't hate Cast, but I, I would say that if if you there, there occasionally you'll see albums being advertised. You know, um, the best album for dads ever, yeah. and the songs they put on from Britpop are your Oasis's, your Verves. Um, your, your casts, you don't get Suede. Suede doesn't appear on the best album for your dad ever. You get the driving anthems, yeah. the, the Brit rock, Brit rock rather than Brit pop. Yeah. And so you essentially, and this is what kills it because it stops being sexy. It stops being exciting. It stops being an, uh, a genre that like the people who like, who like music for music's sake, kind of, you know, the indie nerds have moved on. They've moved on to weirdest things. And um the pop nerds, the pop kids, the, the people who like the sexy stuff, the the people who are, you know, the the beating heart of the British music industry, they're listening to the Spice Girls now. And Radiohead come along and they go, and it's, you know, there's this existential crisis. The Manics had a uh, the Manics like had basically what what we call a post-morning glory album. There's all the big records after that are post-morning glory records. They are like solid songwriting, boring shirts, and um, not that I mean, everything was go is an amazing record. I'm not dissing everything was go because that's that's one of my favorite ever albums. But you know, it's not an exciting look. It's not sexy. And the Verve have been around for years. Like again, like Pulp had been around for years and years and years. But they were they were a shoegaze band. Um, and they come back and they are hundred percent cribbing from the Oasis the Oasis playbook. And their label knows it, and they're marketed in the same way. It's music for your, it's like music for your dad as well as for you. It's but it's Richard Ashcroft and they his button-up shirt. They weren't the only band. They weren't the only band to do this because I, one of my first ever gigs or indie gigs was I went to see Jesus Jones at the Birmingham Hummingbird about 1990, I think. And supporting was this baggy band called Ocean Colour Scene, yeah. who released a couple of singles as a baggy band, yeah. and then came back as we've, we've always been modsless. Yeah, and that's it. It was the Weller. Weller was partly responsible, actually. Like Weller, Weller comes out at the same time and essentially is playing the same kind of music. And it's not that there's bad. This is bad music. There's lot. Like I said, there's some good songs. There's some good bands. There's some good records. Everything Must Go, I think, is an exceptional record. But what happens is you get this crisis in this crisis in British indie music, where all those bands that were massive and were sexy and poppy have complete fucking breakdowns. And that's when you get to 1998, you have Blur's Blur record, weird, druggy, like um, uh, ostent- like deliberately discordant. You've got This Is Hardcore by Pulp, a strange CD record. You've got um, This Is My True Tell Me Yours by The Manic Street Preachers, a completely depressing album about aging and misery and grief made by people who are still under 30 <laughs> um radiohead okay computer alienation like um the kind of the breakdown of cultural capitalism like, like everything go everyone goes mad and those bands are all kind of doing interesting but depressing stuff and then what's left in what in that they they all remove themselves from Britpop, from the label Britpop. They all back away carefully like Homer Simpson into a bush. And what's left are <laughs> essentially the Verve and bands like the Verve. And I like the Verve and Bittersweet Symphony is a great song. Um, and it's anthemic and with good, you know, it's every, it deserves its place on those, on those 
lists of British anthems and those drive time compilations. Um, but that music stops being exciting. It stops being sexy. It, the pop element falls away. And Br- uh, for me, that's Britpop. That's the death of Britpop. That's where it ends. That's where, and I don't count Travis or the Stereophonics or Coldplay or like those bands that kind well, of. Well, that, 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 that was the next wave. That was the post Britpop yeah, wave. I don't. Um, all right, this this is pro- this is probably a good as good a time as any to to call it a day. We've we've gone from the art house um, inception start of Britpop right up to the Brit rock swagger of uh, bands like The Verve. Um, we have been taught this. Uh, this has probably been the longest, and I, I didn't think it was going to be. This is probably going to be the longest of the MSG episodes, but we did have a lot to get. through. Through. I apologize. Um, I'm you, also not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you want to find out more about Mark's stuff, that's markburrows.co.uk and that's Mark with a C. Um, Thank just you. in case I, you haven't read the introduction below. Um, we're going to end on Bittersweet Symphony. Um, hopefully, the Rolling Stones will make some money from it. And they won't actually. Um, we're not going to come back. They gave the rights back. Oh, have they made a deal? They gave the rights back last year. <sighs> because Jagger and Richards that's didn't nice even write that string part. It was, it was it, like Andrew Lou Goldham recorded a cover and he wrote a string part for the cover. <laughs> so it's not even technically, they had nothing to do with it. But anyway, they've get, they, they gave the, the rights back to Richard Ashcroft last year. Well, well, maybe Richard Ashcroft will get a little bit of money from, from, from this. And um, all right. So um, we've done Britpop. Mark, thank you very much for coming on and spending your Sunday evening with us. We record on Sundays, by the way. And um, yeah, infrequency.co.uk, find, that's where you find us. You'll find all the other stuff. Uh, and we're going to end on Bittersweet Symphony. So bye. Bye.